Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Amanda. Welcome back to Westminster Reimagined, a special New Statesman podcast series that looks at how politics works and if it can be done better. And in today's episode, which will be the last in this series of Westminster Reimagined, we're delving into the inner workings of British political reporting, exploring the complex world of the lobby, the blurred relationships that many political journalists and politicians balance, trading access and trust, and how this landscape has been evolving over the past few years with the rise of digital and alternative media. This being a 24-hour uh, journalistic cycle, you were away for our next discussion because you were on another assignment. Yes. Um, but earlier, uh, I spoke to uh, Ian Dunt, columnist at The Eye and former editor of Politics Co. UK, and Ash Sarkar, senior editor of Navarra Media. Ian, you worked for a while as a lobbyist. Not a lobbyist. You worked in the... <laughs> steady on. Steady on there. Let's, this is a fair and accurate podcast, so let me get the terms of this absolutely right. You worked in the parliamentary lobby. Yeah, I think we were the first website to be authorised by the sergeant-at-arms, which is how you get authorization for the lobby, because basically yeah. you enter an episode of He-Man from the very beginning uh, to operate in the lobby. The concept of sergeant-at-arms and website is something I've never heard in the same sentence. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 it's quite unusual. Um, so you, you get a sort of, it's called Burma Row, which is this hallway in Parliament, and it's full of journalists. Mostly they work in the same room. We were, we were sort of lumped in in a room where they didn't really know where to put people, including the new statesman, actually. That's where they used to be. And a bunch of local journalists and increasingly digital journalists. You are sort of, you're, you're basically given free reign of Parliament to a quite extraordinary extent. I, rem- I remember on the first day, sort of, you've got your key card. And you just sort of keep on, for each door you come to, you just press it and just say, I wonder how long these doors will keep on opening yeah. before they stop. And it's a very long time. Yeah. The two big privileges you're given, really, are the morning and afternoon uh, spokesman's conference. And it's not really a privilege at all. You sit there with your colleagues. Spokesman comes in, Prime Minister spokesman. They have a line to take. They basically read out the script. You ask a series of questions trying to prize them away from the script. Mm. It's very, very hard to do. It's very, very difficult. And you usually come away with nothing. About 10% of the time, that's being generous, there's a bit of give. Like there's a chink of light that you can find in the story that's being told. And suddenly the lobby starts to sort of hunt as a pack, picking up on inconsistencies. And then really it can become a feeding frenzy where you can see the government being reduced in front of your eyes. At those moments, it's very impressive. 90% of the time, it isn't. And has that been like the the efficiency rating? Uh, has it been getting worse or better? I mean, is, is it is is it fit for purpose? I think it's probably been getting better, but mostly just because the government's have been so incompetent for the last few years. So I don't think that's necessarily a statement on the increased skills of journalism. Right. I think it's the it's, decreased skills of government, really, that have, led, that have led there to be an awful lot of chinks of light in order for people to cause havoc. It's quite culturally, I, I certainly found it a very weird space because my... My journalism is sort of the, you know, is a journalism of commitment. I'm very committed to the values that I'm pursuing in the journalism. The lobby's culture is not that at all. It is a much more sort of distant, disinterested, it's sort of more similar really to sports commentary, I think, than the kind of columnist stuff that I will be doing now. Yes. And there's a bit of suspicion around people who look too emotionally involved in the the story as it's going. You're supposed to maintain a distance. Personally, I found that very, very hard and and quite alienating. But Ash, Navarra doesn't have 
take part in the lobby system or or does it? No, you know? we, we don't take part in the lobby system. One, because, you know, we're not a massive organisation. And so if we had someone parked in SW1 all the time, it wouldn't be a great use of manpower mm. in terms of what we've got. And then the second thing is that I genuinely think that the lobby system is one of the worst things about British politics. I think it is not fit for purpose. I think that the incentives that govern lobby journalism are completely dysfunctional. And rather than having this set of people operating as ferrymen for information, they can often be gatekeepers in ways that I think many people who are part of the lobby aren't even conscious of, aren't even aware of. Um, and you talked about, you know, the the moments where um, the lobby gets time with the prime minister's uh, spokesperson twice a day. In order for that to function, everyone has to be chasing the same story. And you end up with a situation where journalists think that something's a story because other journalists think that something's a story. So they have to hunt in packs. There has to be something of a herd mentality. So if you're trying to break in and tell a different kind of story and, you know, maybe put something to the government, which isn't already being chased by the BBC, the Times, the Mail, whatever it is, you are not going to have the support of your colleagues in picking that up and running with it. So you're never going to get that chink of light. And that's just one way in which I think the incentives actually inhibit good journalistic work rather was, than facilitate. Was that it. your experience? Were you what were the frustrations you felt? I think that's broadly true. Yeah. Um, so you can ask whatever you want about whatever area you want, and it can be quite handy actually when you're looking at a, at a much smaller story that usually gets ignored to go in there and at least get some line from the prime minister spokesman because it, it gives it a look of solidity that it otherwise might have struggled to have. But there is definitely a case of groupthink in the lobby, and you feel it almost instantly. So I remember, do you remember uh, Ed Miliband's uh, speech? on price energy price caps, which at the time was considered sort of Bolshevism and is now, yeah. you know, accepted policy by every major party. <laughs> so in the Constitution. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I remember afterwards, this was actually a conference, but, you know, the yeah. lobby was in a sort of huddle afterwards. I remember you're just there and you're just like lots of very senior political editors from pretty much all the different newspapers essentially coming up with a line. And I don't mean that conspiratorially. It's essentially that you're sort of, you're trying to back yourself up so you don't look like you're completely adrift when your editor looks at your copy compared to everyone else's. But people are looking at each other going, well, that was very left-wing, right? That was very left-wing. And you can see the general sense taking over people. Yes. It just comes from basically working in the same room as well, these people all the time. Well, yes. And 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 I, I, I wonder whether there's the equivalent of that on social media. I mean, my social media use is very, very uh, prehistoric. You know, I'm, I'm limited... <laughs> Limited, and I say I use limited uh, in in every sense by using only Twitter. I refuse to call it X, um, and 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 that over the years has become more and more alienating and horrible. Mm. Um, but you see that pack mentality take over on occasions when somebody says something that somebody else disagrees with, and suddenly you know they're trending because the crowd are are telling each other go after this person for what they say. Yeah. I, and I just wonder if that's the that's the sort of digital equivalent of the pack in the lobby, kind of going into groupthink and 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 deciding this is the story and this is the angle. I mean, I think in terms of social media behaviour, I was talking about this with a friend last night. Actually, I think that it's hacked into something very primitive about humans, which is that we're social animals and we're pack animals, and the thing that we fear the most is being excluded by the collective. Mm. Because when we were cave people, that meant you would die. <laughs> and what social media giants have tapped into is our need to feel part of the pack and our intense fear of not being part of the pack. And every day you play reputational roulette and you see if you're going to be mm. in or if you're going to be out. And I think that it taps into something very, very primitive. You know, it's right at the back of your brain mm. and, and it bypasses your sort of conscious awareness. And I don't think it's quite the same with the lobby, because I think with the lobby, it's much more about how do you look to other people in a way which means that you can keep your job? How do you look to other people in a way that means that you could have some career advancement? And how do you, I guess, uphold some unwritten social norms about what is said and what isn't said? And those things change over time. I mean, we've seen it change over time. The lobby line on austerity, you know, 10 uh, years ago, it was very different from the way in which people talk about it now. But if you are outside of that huddle, 
right? And if you're saying something which is different, you're no longer one of us. You're some, you know, weirdo, Navara, lefty blogger. Are you talking from personal experience? <laughs> right, right. No, no, no. I mean, yeah. I, I think this is also why I've not wanted to be a part of it, because mm-hmm. I think that the frustration that you detect in my voice is the frustration of an idealist. I really do believe in journalistic values and I believe in the journalistic process. And for me, where the lobby doesn't uphold it, and, and, and I think that it fails to meet those journalistic standards all too often. I feel like, but you're supposed to be, you know, the creme de la creme, the A-team of journalism. You know, mm. how can you be getting it wrong so much? Okay, well, it, it's definitely not that. Like, whatever else the whatever <laughs> else the lobby is, it, it is not that. I think one of the things that concerns me about it the most is that it is involved almost exclusively in court intrigue. So if we assess a policy, right, so look at Labour's commitment to decarbonising the grid by 2030, it, if you're going to do that, you're about to put the economy on a war footing. Like, it's an extremely ambitious goal, and it will have consequences. We can, you know, disagree whether they're good or bad people's lives. There's almost no appraisal of any of that. It's basically just like, what does this mean to Keir Starmer? What does it mean for his election chances? Rishi Sunak cancels HS2. What does it mean for Rishi Sunak's, you know, chances? Right. No one's, I mean, there's a little bit, right? But very rarely are you seeing anyone, certainly not from the lobby, going to crew, you know, which is about to get a check, you know, about to be a major part of an infrastructure project now no longer is. Yes. Yeah. You know, in the past, what happened to Michael Gove's education reforms? What's happened to private sector involvement in the NHS, whether you agree with it or whether you don't? How much do we actually know about how well this stuff has worked? Almost nothing. When it comes to how policy will work or how it has worked, that part of politics is almost completely ignored. Instead, what we get is just the remorseless focus on now. Yes. It's yes. through a prism of who is up, who is down, what does it mean for their chances? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been, I mean, you know, I grew up on the BBC. I worked at the BBC for ages, and I'm always defending the BBC when it's, you know, when governments of both views really criticise and attempt to. Uh, defund it or mm. reduce funding for it, you know, until I watch the BBC and then I get frustrated because <laughs> for, for that same thing. You, the BBC's you know. like my family. I love them at a distance. <laughs> nice to see them every now and then, but, you know, fundamentally, uh, could you please leave now? Uh, I do get that sense of frustration uh, and, and uh, watching BBC News, yes, fine, you've told me what's happening here, you've done, but please tell me a bit more. Is, is it because they're afraid? And I'm talking not just about BBC, but, you know, uh, ITV News, mainstream broadcast news. Uh, that doesn't include GB News, obviously. Um, what is, uh, do they feel restricted? Do they feel it's too complicated? Is it cuts to budget that successive governments think, have imposed? I think that the budget cuts, and this isn't just the BBC, this is happening in newsrooms up and down the country, is such a massive part of this story about why is it all court intrigue? Why is it always who's up and who's mm. down? So organic, sorry, original news gathering capacity has just been completely gutted. It's really, really expensive and it's hard to do and it's time consuming. Mm. You've got to get everything legaled and copper bottomed. So you've got a model of journalism where most journalists are just stuck in one place, whether that's sort of at their laptops churning out clickbait or whether that is just being parked in Westminster. The second thing is that you've got an increasing reliance um, on political correspondence from the news desks because you don't have as many people going out and about and gathering news outside of these very, very limited spheres. Mm. So where do you have people out in the field? It's the lobby. It's political correspondence. And so then you have those lobby stories leading the news cycle and you end up, I think, you know, maybe 75% of news is people talking about something someone said in response to something someone else has yes, said. Yes, it's exactly. endless yes. churn And they're allowed react. to talk about a gossipy story if mm. another news organisation has picked up on it, mm-hmm. because then we can talk about the gossipy story that ITV are talking about, and ITV can say, well, now the BBC are talking about it, so we can now talk about it. And look at how cheap it is. Yeah. Right, Nadine Dory says something unbelievably fucking stupid on Twitter. Gary Lineker or something goes, oh, you're unbelievably fucking stupid. You know, and off you go. And you can write up that story. I could probably write that story in 10 minutes. Yeah. It's basically free to produce. And it gets traffic. Mm. It gets traffic in a way that, frankly, it is hard. You know, we I think we've probably all sat there going, OK, this is a piece on probation. How am I going to frame this to try and get interest for this kind of stuff? And that is much more expensive to produce. It takes a really long time. You've got to talk to a lot of people. You've got to do a lot of research. That kind of fundamental economic incentive is really, really damaging. I think there's also, by the way, been this really this really pernicious um, structural change in the way that journalists secure their information in Parliament. And back in the day, basically before New Labour, you would have press offices and departments that actually worked. You'd have people who actually knew something in a government press office. Their job was to explain the policy. The minister would sell the policy, but the civil servant would explain the policy. 
you try and call up like a departmental press office now, and it is, you might as well call up the switchboard of, you know, BT or something. It's just like, what will happen is they'll listen to you talk and then they'll say, can you pop that in an email for me so that they can show it to a media special advisor yes. to assess how dangerous it is and send you a line back. You don't get anything from the press office. Yeah. So a description of the policy doesn't exist. Instead, you're pushed towards, can I contact the media spad, the media special advisor on WhatsApp? That's and certainly been something we've been picking up over the course of the years we've been doing this podcast, the, the, the centralizing of uh, power, information, control, money at number 10 and the yeah, Treasury, yeah. and the lack of any kind of power now in the ministries that the government ministers are there to just enact the policy. And if the civil servants throw up any objections, they're out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or, or there's an alternative civil service in place in the number of SPADs and advisors who are brought in. I mean, g going back to the lobby for a second, in 2004, there was a government communications report about the lobby. And one of the, its conclusions was that the way in which it functions damages the credibility of both politics and media, because it creates the perception of this sort of closed, very opaque, very insider kind of system. And information is used as currency. There's a system of favoritism. So mm. certain journalists get, you know, bigger bites of a particular juicy apple and others are left out to starve on the basis of what can this journalism do for me, the government of the day. So interestingly, this was put out in 2004. Uh, uh, during Tony Blair's administration. And it was one of those things where everyone went, oh, this seems really bad, but it benefits us to say that way. So we're absolutely mm. not going to change mm. how this functions. And I think that we've seen in recent years, this whole thing just gets so much worse. I mean, I don't know how comfortable you are with naming names on this podcast, but I am. Um, Fine. I mean, we've got, <laughs> we've, we've got, we've got time to check it. Yeah, so. also, we're it's, not all, live. it's all true, so he ain't gonna sue. <laughs> Ross Kempsell, who was, um, you know, a political correspondent for, I believe it was Talk Radio, he does this absurd soft serve interview with Boris Johnson, and then he goes off and he works for the Conservative Party. Then he leaves politics, he comes back to journalism, and then, would you believe it, mm. goes back to the Conservative Party again, and he's now elevated as a Tory peer in the House of Lords. All of this doesn't happen over a long and storied career of decades. It happens over the course of four years. You've got this guy who starts out doing sort of, you know, court stenography, really. Um, and then he becomes a Tory peer. And rather than lobby journalists going, well, what does this say about our industry? We're supposed to be impartial. We're supposed to be predator and they're supposed to be prey. But then here he is, yes. you know, becoming, you know, a life peer. Instead, it's like, well, can't you, really talk about the system that caused that to happen. Do you think broadcasters like the BBC feel uh, cowed by attacks from governments uh, in not going, not not uh, originating stories like that, not feeling that they can comment or indeed start uh, an investigation into something like that? I think they definitely are. I mean, all, all organisations are. You'd see the same, like, I remember talking after the, the Hale verdict on the prorogation of Parliament to people around the Supreme Court. And they would say, look, don't forget the Supreme Court's a political entity, you know, and as the government attacks it, you would expect it to start coming up with judgments that are more favourable to the government for a period. Organisations feel attacks from government. You get the same, I think, when we saw some of the culture war attacks on cultural bodies, you know, the National Trust, BFI. People get nervous and the BBC gets nervous as well. I mean, the BBC is not hiding the fact that it gets nervous. It almost looks like it's having a perpetual nervous breakdown. Yeah. So, you know, absolutely, it is impacted by that kind of pressure from the government. And it would happen. And it did happen under Labour. I mean, it was exactly the same under New Labour as it is now under the Conservatives. Yes, the product of the Hutton report was that the Director General resigned. Exactly. Um, I, I always have this... Realization really that you know whenever the BBC is accused of a crime, rather than l investigating and putting its case together, it just hands itself into the nearest police. <laughs> and just, Don't even know what I've done. Just, just uh, done yeah. with it because otherwise. Uh, and I have heard, and we'll, this this will then get us on to, to looking at news organisations that operate totally outside the mainstream and on social media, uh, because there have been more and more um, high-profile journalists leaving the likes of BBC and ITV for these very reasons that mm. they feel a little bit... And I have had BBC journalists tell me that they did feel during Brexit, they did feel pressured by the government to be easy on the Brexit campaign and not challenge them too much, the, the, the number on the side of buses and, and that sort of thing, because you had 
the arts, the culture secretary at the time, uh, John Whittingdale, saying, I do hope the BBC will be very balanced as they look at this, who was also on the Brexit yes, campaign. Yes, I, I do hope nothing bad happens to you or your family. Yes. We don't want anyone hurt, <laughs> do we? I mean, they had that. And then they also did the classic thing that we were just describing, really, which is that they just Westminstered it. Like Brexit was basically essentially a, like a really torturous technical series of nightmarish problems. And you've got loads of economics experts, trade experts, currency experts working at the BBC. You can bring them in and treat the story that way. And to a certain extent, I think that Sky actually did that. Sky had a rather different approach. The BBC just booted it over to the Westminster people and it basically became another, he said, she said, no, this guy says Brexit will be yeah, fine. Yeah. This guy says Brexit will be a disaster. And, and then let's go out on the streets, which uh, uh, we always, at home, we always watch the news on record so that we can fast forward because the, the vox pops in the streets are like, <laughs> we have to have Three people go, I think it's a bad idea. And three people go, I think it's quite good. Because <laughs> if they did anything else, they'd be accused of political bias. See, I, I think that Vox Pops can be really useful huh. when you have something of a conversation, mm. right? And so you sort of see, well, how does someone react to different kinds of yes. arguments? And you get to see someone in the fullness of their political selves. Because everyone holds contradictory ideas, and I think that that's interesting. I think the very fact that that wasn't done and Vox Pops were this really shallow, like, there's guy seems normal. He seems like, you know, middle-aged and he's, you know, outside of Poundland in the middle yeah. of the day. Like, you know, go for it. Um, it means that you know. have I, this really two-dimensional view of people. I do want them to say, honestly, half of them did say they agreed and half of them didn't, you mm -hmm. know, because I, I, there's no way of knowing from these vox pops what the actual pro proportions of the opinion was, really, because they're bound by this let's be balanced. Also, just on a basic sort of scientific element, if, if it's a cultural issue where yes. there's going to be a distinction according to age, very yes. likely, if you go out on a Tuesday afternoon in a town, most of the people that are below the age of 65 are at work. And so the people you're going to very often get are people that are a bit older. They're going to more likely have a more reactionary view on a social issue. It's just not a very effective way of understanding what's necessarily going on in the country. I mean, we did some Brexit Vox Pops in Barking, and because it was a, a weekday during the day, had a load of over 65s, but it also happened to be Eid. So I also had like a ton oh, wow, of young right, Muslims right. as well who were absolutely <laughs> dressed to the nines because it was Eid. And we sort of, you know, picked that day because we were like, we're not just going to get loads of really old people. But it meant that we just had this like wonderful, um, you know, canvas of, of human life in East London, mm. which I really enjoyed. 
presumably get as wide an audience as possible. How do you, how do you square those two things? Well, never forget, Karl yeah. Marx was a journalist. Um, <laughs> well, the first thing is that Navarra developed first as a podcast between two guys talking about very, very obscure left-wing theory. Yeah. So if you go back to our early yeah. podcast, none of it was about the news cycle. It was entirely about Gramsci, Hart, and Negri. And then we developed more of a... a news-oriented side of us. And that meant that we had to really decide what kind of news outlet we wanted to be. Did we just want to be uh, left-wing polemicists who didn't have much regard for the journalistic practice? Or did we want to build that in and find a way to integrate journalistic practice with the politics that we want to advance in the world? And that actually turned out to be remarkably easy. So the first thing is that we decided to be regulated by Impress. And the thing about Impress is that it's a press regulator, which is the only one to have integrated all of the Leveson recommendations into its code of conduct and its guidelines. And we're really proud to do that because for a lot of us, a big part of our politicization was watching the Leveson Inquiry. It was actually a friend of a friend who custard pied uh, Rupert Murdoch. Um, the second thing <laughs> is that we we don't believe in impartiality or a posture of journalistic neutrality. We just don't think it exists. But what we do believe in is accuracy and objectivity in the handling of facts. Mm -hmm. And one of the things which I think has been really good about learning the journalistic practice is that it's taught me to be sceptical of myself. Mm. And that adversarial relationship that you have with an editor who is pushing you to be more precise, better sourced, um, better at articulating yourself, I think that ultimately that's helpful if you are partisans like we yeah. like we are that helps you build an argument in a way that people can trust you and they think so that you're an that, honest broker how does that operate that kind of impartiality or editorial um rigor so i mean if i write a piece um you know, let's say my editor is Simon Childs, who's someone who has a real newsy background. He came from Vice. Um, he will go through it line by line like any editor would. And he would say, how many sources do you have for this thing? This wording is vague. This is crap. Get rid of it. You need to move this paragraph up. It is just as annoying and adversarial as everybody else's editorial relationship. Um, the other thing that that we do is that Impress covers our social media mm -hmm. as well. So our social media use as individuals. Oh, now, wow. of course, um, of course, everyone fucks up on social media. It is the great equaliser. Twitter turns mm -hmm. every single human being into a dumbass. Um, but it's quite useful. Apart from me. I mean, I handle it. Like, beautifully fantastic. Just, uh, um, no. Like every single person <laughs> yeah. will... will fuck up on Twitter. Yeah. Like you are playing reputational roulette every time you log on. It doesn't do irony or emphasis, does it? Twitter? And also it just invites you to react really quickly yes. to things because yeah. if you're not reacting, who are you online? You may yeah. as well be dead. Yeah. Um, and the useful thing that we have as, as an organization is that, you know, if someone does speak too quickly, an editor can come and say, look, you've got to, you've got to change how you worded this. This flies in the face of the guidelines that we've all signed up to. So yes, it's more limiting than just being an outright polemicist or an activist or a campaigner. And there are people on the left who get really frustrated with us. They're saying, well, why aren't you saying this thing? And it's like, because on, we can't on the prove left, it. Yeah. There are people who get really angry with other people. There's on the leftists left. <laughs> infighting. Oh my gosh. It's factionalism, is it? Um, <laughs> you know, there, there are people yeah. who feel that, that that we don't go far enough as an organisation. Um, but that's because we, we do take journalism seriously. I mean, the one thing I'd like to say is that I don't want every single outlet to be like Navarra. I don't think the BBC would be better if it was like mm. Navarra. But I do think that we need a much more varied no, media ecology. That's what I was going to say, though, is that where does someone who is, say, apolitical, non-political, but interested, you know, might vote Conservative one election, Labour another, you know, Green another, you know, where do they go? If they if they start losing faith in the likes of the BBC and so on, where, where do they go for their news source where they can be confident that what they're reading is true and uh, and is being reported accurately? What where, where are the outlets? I mean, I think that's a really difficult thing because... People have tried to set up those outlets. So you've got Semaphore, which has been um, presenting news in a different mm -hmm. kind of way, making a really strong distinction between its news and opinion within mm -hmm. a piece, um, saying, you know, what do they say? What do they say? And breaking it up like that. But 
you have to be a real nerd to choose Semaphore yes. as your news outlet of mm. choice. Oh, you when I asked that question, Ian, because do you know? Do you well, have I don't think thoughts? there are, there are no. many options, really. I suppose if you're a real Westminster nerd, you'd be reading something like Politico, and the same in Washington or in, in yeah. Brussels, just pretty straight down the line. But, I mean, I, I just don't know, you know, because you can't say that really for the Times anymore. I suppose you could say the Times and the Financial Times in the news sections. The Times in its sort of editorial section has gone completely insane. But the news section still, generally speaking, is, is relatively straight down the line. But even there, you see real corrosion of standards, I think, in terms of reporting a government announcement on the day. Then two days later, having a bit of analysis going, oh, actually, it turns out this is completely illegal and there are all sorts of practical obstacles. Yeah, it's like, yeah, but you yeah. already function as the government's press office I mean, on that, the day that it needs I, 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 One of the first things I did when I was a radio producer, uh, I hesitate to say, 30 years ago. Um, was <laughs> a uh, wireless producer, wasn't it? <laughs> a wireless, yes. <laughs> a diode. I was a diode uh, producer, and um, it was. I was producing the news quiz, which required me, you know, to set the questions, reading every newspaper every day. And within three weeks, I suddenly realised that no one newspaper gave me the full story. I mean, it was a complete eye-opener to me. Mm -hmm. Who always thought that, you know, the likes of the Independent and the whatever, which was giving you something. No, that, that, the, the fact that what they're reporting there is new information that isn't there in the other one. And and that, for me, is then, man, I can't pick up any newspaper now thinking I'm getting the whole story. So it's always been there, I think. And, and there always is you know, subjective editorialising that goes on in any news organ. You know, there's, there's someone in charge of the news at 10 who will determine what's the for, most important story that goes first. And that's a, that's a kind of professional but personal judgment that they uh, that they impose on on that that evening's programme. I mean, one of the things that's quite interesting about how we're having this conversation is that our imaginary normie who just wants some yeah. news, um, we're talking about print predominantly and a bit of broadcast, whereas actually for younger people, TikTok it's is TikTok. just such it's a TikTok. massive part yeah. of how they access news. And what makes someone connect with something on TikTok is very different from what makes someone connect with a newspaper. So they want a human being presenting the information that they like or empathize yes. with or relate to in some way. The material that they tend to engage with will relate to some aspect of their personal or political identity. It's much more about feeling aligned in terms of values. It makes you want to share something because by sharing it, you're saying something about yourself. And that's one of the things that we've been working out as a news organization, which is how can we use TikTok in such a way that yes. presents reliable information in a way which um, works with those incentives um, of the platform. And I think, I think that we've been doing quite well with it. And one of the things I'm quite proud of is that Navarra's TikTok reach is bigger than The Guardian's TikTok reach, but that doesn't necessarily tra into, translate into a funding model. And I don't also, want to see Adrian Charles on TikTok. I, I mean, I would love that. to see Adrian Charles yeah, on TikTok. I, I, what I are you talking about? As well. <laughs> he would be amazing on TikTok. Oh my God. I'm going to like pitch that to him and be like, I want a cut of... Uh, I can just imagine Polly Toynbee on TikTok, but, but I, don't, I don't want to see it. Uh, I've actually got the stats here of, of what 16 to 24 year olds, where 16 to 24 year olds get their uh, news from. Uh, BBC is one of the, the, the top news sources used by 33% of them. That's equal to Facebook. Uh, but they are behind Instagram, which is at 44%, Twitter at 31%, uh, TikTok's at 29%, but I'm sure that's going up. But, but also, um, a lot of the uh, Instagram and Facebook uh, sources actually originate on TikTok. So that, that illustrates the point you were making, that TikTok is, is unfortunately the place to be. <laughs> it's, it's, going, it's, yeah. it's going up massively for, for younger people. Yeah. Um, but how do you, how do you um, it, you know, in going on to TikTok, how, how do you get across the fact that you're still an independent, factually accurate <laughs> news organisation. That's the thing is that yeah. on TikTok, there's no way to communicate that because when people come across a TikTok, it's totally decontextualised. Mm. It's through a For You page and it's not necessarily that your TikTok page is that much of a destination. It doesn't operate in the same way mm. as a news website does. So you just have to uphold the standards and keep your fingers crossed that people get that this is quality information, but there's no way yes. to sort of control how they're receiving what you're putting out and what else they're consuming, mm. which might be a load of shit. Can we, this thing of 
being sort of objective, but not necessarily balanced or impartial, I think is like really important. Mm. And these words always just get mixed around yes. in, in things yes. if they're equivalent. They're not equivalent at all. And I feel the same way, although obviously I think from a rather different political perspective about my own work. People, not just through TikTok, but also through podcasts, we used to find as we were doing the podcast that we would assume way too much knowledge. Mm. Basically assume that they're all frenzied Twitter people like us. And in fact, a lot of the time they were getting their news through the discussion on the podcast. And that then puts you in a position of real responsibility as the journalist. And it's not just about standards, although really you have to keep the standards and make sure that if something doesn't contribute to your case, you still mention it, you still make it clear that it is there. It is also about having the kind of resilience, as I think you were alluding to about Twitter earlier, of when the crowd pushes for a certain attitude towards things, you have enough resilience to be like, well, hang on a minute, actually, that's not right. You know, you see really successful substacks, really successful podcasts that are all just about feeding the tribal audience exactly what it needs to an ever higher crescendo uh, until eventually it becomes sort of quite blockaded off from the rest of the sort of the new society and incredibly angry and alienated from political opponents. So as a journalist, you need to be able to sort of hold fast on some of that stuff and be like, no, hang on a minute, that, that just isn't true or that just isn't a helpful way of looking at it. And that moral aspect to what a journalist does becomes more and more important the more that people get their information from places that they think are sort of quite associated with their views. And I, I kind of think that there is this emergence of a hybrid media model. And I think that Navarra is doing and I think that you've been operating the space as well, where you're, you're practicing journalism you are, in our case, trying to build a media organisation, a website which will function as a destination like The Guardian's homepage does or the NYT's homepage does. But also it's really reliant on people like myself my, and my colleagues to be this kind of weird hybrid journalist influencer where people are looking to you because you mirror some aspect of their values, but you're also doing the work of journalism. And that is a very weird place to be in sometimes. These things don't always cohere and there's immense tension between both of those roles. But it is a way in which we've been able to develop a funding model which is entirely reliant on people feeling that they believe in this project. Because if people stopped believing us as, in us as a project, we would be bust within a month. Are you, do you feel under pressure then to you know, provide them with output, that they, given that they're paying for you in a way or funding you, uh, is, do you feel there might be even a subconscious uh, temptation to provide for output that they will be more agreeable to receiving? I mean, the thing which is, I mean, this is a conversation that goes on internally all the time, is that our audience isn't just one thing. So our audience, in a way, very much mimics that Corbyn era coalition of graduates without a future, old school trade unionists, um, people who felt very you know strongly about Brexit one way or another. Like we're trying to keep all these people happy, and if you feed one group, then another starts barking at you. <laughs> and I think that in a way that keeps us from being too much in hock to like one kind of imagined person, because <clears throat> the others will get really really mad at you quite mm. quickly. Um, I think in terms of how those incentives shape the work that we do. Um, one of the things that we've had to learn to be okay with is getting yelled at by people who don't like the information that they're hearing because the negative voices are always louder than the people who like it. Mm. So you look at the criticisms and you go, well, is this fair or legitimate? And if it's not, you just have to take the flack. Yes. I mean, at the time of recording, there are various organisations, not just journalists and news organisations going through this tightrope of opinion negotiating the Hamas, uh, Israel, uh, Palestine issue, Gaza, um, where, you know, if you criticise the Israeli government, you're accused of one thing. Um, if you uh, mention the Palestinians, you're accused of another thing. And yet there are there are tragedies taking place on, on either side here. And and I just I just worry that journalists are feeling that they have to pick, <laughs> they have to pick a lane on this, where, where the objectivity, where you, you know, it is possible to describe what's going on across the region in, in an objective sense. Do, do you feel there's an a pressure, or there's a, there's a, there's a sense of groupthink that's beginning to grow as to how these things are portrayed? There are certain issues where, as soon as you enter into it, you know that you are going to lose people. Yeah. As we're recording this, we're in the frenzy of the moment um, when it comes to the Middle East. And any, and to a certain extent, anything you say will lose you someone. I do think that if you create as your lodestar on this issue, 
be very boring if you did this all the time, but on this issue, if your lodestar is, I care about humanity, you can find your way through this thing and you can come up with, a, with a, an objective appraisal that recognizes mutual tragedies that I think will keep most reasonable people with you. But look, it's a really emotional moment and they'll be lost there. And that's partly when you have that thing of the resilience of thinking, you know, you've just got to say it properly and not concern yourself too much about the consequences. I mean, one of the people who I've learned a lot from is my colleague, Michael Walker, because he is quite a heterodox thinker. He's never been keen on left dogma. And when people present to him an argument, which is a series of slogans, he's got absolutely <laughs> no time for it. And he's got this kind of, you know, 360 degree scepticism while still being very, you know, principled and he's got his politics, but he's got this 360 degree scepticism, which I really want to emulate in so many ways. And I think that what's interesting is that partisans often get written off as being incapable of having that quality. But internally within the organization, I'm like, I've, I've seen this and I've seen how you do it. And I think that there's there's real integrity to it. I mean, on the, on the Israel and Palestine issue, I think that what's going on in mainstream media, legacy media, whatever you want to call it, um, it illustrates again, these problems of groupthink. So some polling came out from YouGov. I mean, we're talking in late October, so all of this might change again within, you know, a week or two. But some polling came out from YouGov showing that 76% of the British public are in favour of a ceasefire in Gaza. Now, there is, whatever you think about that particular issue, a massive gulf between the position of most of the British public and the political consensus that's in Westminster. That is not the position of the Conservative Party or the Labour Party. Now, that would be a sort of quite typical thing for journalists to, to press politicians on, right? Well, public opinions here, you guys are over here, I'm going to make you answer for that. But that's not something that's happening because the consensus amongst journalists tends to be a lot more aligned um, with Israel than it is aligned with the demands which are coming from the pro-Palestinian movement. So you've got this gap in discourse, in values and beliefs between the public and this sort of, you know, horrible congealed mass of journalists and politicians. And I think that when journalists aren't fulfilling that role of, of ferrying public opinion up to the politicians and pressing them on it, that's quite bad. Do you think we've ever done that, though? Like, if you were to think the obvious examples are nationalisation on the left and capital punishment on the right, right? So both of these propositions have had very strong public support, including, you know, on nationalisation of railways, for instance. Mm -hmm. You pretty much always had a majority of Tory members were, were supporting this stuff. And it's, But I never really saw, you know, journalists taking that kind of stuff and putting it to the politicians. It was always just like, oh, fine, yeah, but it's not pertinent right now. You know, as soon as something becomes pertinent to an acute political issue, it comes up. But this is mm -hmm. pertinent to an acute political yeah, why, issue and why, it's not why, happening. Why isn't there someone... Uh, 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 on, on either BBC News or ITV saying, you know, it's 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 not anti-Semitic to criticise the policies of the Israeli government. It is anti-Semitic to assume that the Israeli population as a whole or, you know, Jewish people everywhere support, the, are responsible for the policies of the, the mm -hmm. Israeli government. And neither is it pro-terrorist to want humanitarian and humanitarian approach to what is going on in Gaza. Uh, and it says something about, I mean, I, I, I had to go with the BBC earlier, but it says something about the, the value the BBC has in, in that it is being accused of being both pro-Israeli and pro-terrorist yes, on is, this yeah. issue. Yeah. Because, you know, it's impossible to get it exactly right. And it's impossible, I think, to, um, to withdraw your entire um, sense of moral outrage from reporting of these facts on, on both sides. And I think, I think it is interesting. I think it's good that there are outlets now where people feel free to express, look, this is where we stand politically, but this is how we're going to approach uh, the way we report things. The problem, I, I think, as a, if you're completely you know, new to all this, is how do you distinguish the outlet that has journalistic standards from the one not mentioning names, apart from GB News, who don't mm -hmm. and who are repeatedly picked up for not being impartial, who have MPs from one party interviewing other MPs from that party. And that's the bit that we haven't talked about because it's, yeah. it's, it's hard for journalists to talk about. But ultimately, the system cannot work unless you have a literate news audience. 
And a literate news audience needs to be able to assess the relative validity and respectability of an outlet. And that goes down to a quite granular level. Like if you're reading a newspaper article about a new policy from the government and it only has one byline, the name of one writer, that writer's typically in the lobby and they would have just churned out with about half an hour to spare whatever the government tells them. If there's two names there, usually the other one will be a home affairs editor, a health editor, you know, someone with a bit more background in the subject that can go, actually, well, they tried this three years ago and it didn't work out very well and can add some nuance to that. So you really want to be able to have a kind of readership that can make that sort of assessment. Is this article linking out somewhere? Where is it linking out to? Is it just some other comment piece that the same person wrote or is it an actual academic study? That kind of literacy is absolutely essential to what we do. Yes, but that involves a lot of work on the person on the on the part of the yeah, viewer exactly. or reader, yeah. doesn't it? Uh, and and I wonder whether the um the regulators that we have now are still based on the old model and whether there's a way, I say regulator, but oversight of, of, of this new media so that we can determine, you know, it's almost like you want a kite mark that says, <laughs> irrespective of whether you agree with their editorial stance, they, they have st journalistic standards that we approve of. I mean, what's interesting is that particularly on YouTube, there is a whole genre of video, of content creator who just breaks things down. Now, yes. this isn't always a good breakdown. I mean, I've had like some of my content broken down by mad far right activists <laughs> who are like, and this shows she's in favor of the great replacement. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, but there is a whole genre of this uh, where people are going, you know, line by line through a news yeah. piece and like, you know, stopping every five seconds and going, did you notice this? Mm. Um, you know, uh, streamers include Noah Sampson, um, Hassan Piker. This is what they do all day. And there is a massive audience for it because people crave being given the tools to understand the media yeah. environment. Mm -hmm. There is yeah. a huge audience for that. And it's something which YouTube content creators understand very, very well. But legacy media doesn't know what to do with it. And I think that they've tried to engage with it by, you know, operating as the sort of umpires of discourse. You know, you see this a lot with the various misinformation services. One of the issues with these misinformation services is that they always pick up on what's circulating online rather than the shit journalism, no, exactly. which has been produced and pumped out. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's an extraordinary thing. You never see any assessment of like, well, the Daily Mail is essentially at this point just churning out knowingly fake news. You know, that doesn't fit into it. The conspiracy theory stuff is, is innately connected to the online. And that point on what people want is 100% true. The appetite is mm. strong. In fact, I'd basically say my entire career is based on just people wanting to read stuff about how does shit work? Like, how is this actually going to play out? You feel like there's an appetite there. I feel like producers and editors are typically really wary of that level of detail, and it costs lots of money to produce it. So the appetite, the demand is there. We just need people who are willing to provide the supply. Right. Uh, well, thank you. That's on that I was going to say optimistic. No, I don't. I don't know if it is an optimistic. <laughs> on that it's complex, the we're going to get. in that complex note, uh, we, we ought to end it there. But that's it. We've covered uh, quite a lot there. But there's, you know, we could spend another day and a half on this at least, uh, and we wouldn't even have scratched the surface. Thanks very much, Ash, and thanks very much, Ian, for coming in. So that was an interesting chat, really, because it threw up both the um, actually quite a lot of the restrictions of where the media landscape is lying now in that, you know, Ash was willing to accept that it's possible to be partisan at the same time as being journalistically thorough. But we then end up in this fragmented landscape and there's nothing telling us when we're getting news from an authenticated outlet as opposed to one who's making stuff up. Yeah, I mean, that that is the big issue, especially coming up to an election, because yes. first of all, it's really difficult for us as journalists and also politicians to know where people are actually getting their news from. So yeah. there's all of these uh, sort of um, atomized audiences getting their information from different sources. You see younger people, you know, overwhelmingly rely on Instagram and other social media sites to get their information. Yeah. And then you have sort of Navarra's audience, which is a very specific sort of ideological group. Um, and then older people who might be getting their news in a more traditional way. But it's so fragmented. Yes, I always think that the telltale sign that what you're hearing or reading might be nonsense is if it has the word truth or fact in it <laughs> as part of their title, like truth social is Trump's social yes. media thing. And um, I think the, what was it, the last election, the conservatives fact checked. Uh, they did. 
during the live debates and they called them, they changed their title to something like... Something neutral sounding. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it was like fact, yeah. you know, facts as they are or something. <laughs> and, and they're very, very up on saying how factually accurate GB News is, despite the fact that Ofcom keeps... Um, rebuking re- them. Rebuking them. Yeah. For the lack of. So um, it, it's, a, it's a tricky one. It throws a lot of the um, onus back on us, the viewer and listener and hearer, uh, um, to, to work out for ourselves. Mm, and in a way, it's always been quite obscure. It's interesting to hear sort of Ian in particular talk about the lobby system and how, you know, the the attributions that you give to some of the sources, prime minister's spokesperson, senior party source, all of these things obscure where you're actually getting that information from and means that sometimes you, you may inadvertently being a mouthpiece for a certain ideological viewpoint rather than relaying information to yes. the reading public who don't know who, who these people are. And you passed up on the chance to be a lobby correspondent. Yeah, I was in there briefly and then I left... Um, um, at the New Statesman, because I wanted to be able to do that reporting on the impact that politics has on people. I'm not saying that there are lobby journalists who don't do that, but it gives me a bit more freedom. So, uh, you know, I missed this discussion, for example, because I was in Hastings reporting on the housing crisis. And if I was, you know, if I had to be in Westminster every day reporting mm. on the comings and goings of the politicians, I wouldn't be able to do as many reports like that. That's right. And, and uh, what was picked up quite a bit in the conversation was the fact that there's this reliance on asking the political correspondent to analyse something as impactful as the budget yeah. rather than, you know, the social affairs correspondent or, or what impact will it have on people's lives as well as their, you know, purse. Yeah, I mean, that's something I once interviewed Martin Lewis, you know, the money-saving expert, and his big bugbear was that um, actually consumer rights journalists are never the most prominent correspondents, especially for stories like the budget, where actually that's the most important thing. How is this going to affect us as consumers? Um, and, you know, you can see that with the renting crisis, for example. We have so few rights as consumers. We have fewer rights than if we were to buy a fridge. Um, <laughs> and so it's interesting how, you know, political journalists who have their own expertise and their own skills are sort of expected to be experts on every single policy area, which just isn't realistic. Well, I'd like to hope that this entire, not just this series, but the all the seasons of, of this podcast have been trying to do a little bit of that, which is get behind the immediate headlines and move away from the usual spokespeople yeah. and look at alternatives, look and see where certain issues break down and how they do impact on communities and, and societies. Yeah, and something that I've been really pleased that we've done, not just in this series, but throughout the whole series that we've done so far, is having the, the voices of people who are actually impacted by some of the things that we've been talking about. I think they've added so much insight into the conversations as well. Yes, and uh, it's, it's just been great to allow them to to be able to sit back and listen to what they have to say, actually. You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined, a bonus New Statesman podcast series with me, Anusha Kellyan, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. This is the last episode of the series, but if you'd like to go back and listen to our previous episodes, you can find them all wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Westminster Reimagined with Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Our executive producer is Chris Stone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.